The Simpsons is a classic, beloved television show. The scripts of The Simpsons have been made publicly available, and they include dialogue, location, and character information. So why does this have anything to do with Software Engineering Daily? Well, Todd Schneider used these scripts and the dialogue and other information sources as a corpus to analyze The Simpsons as a data scientist, and he found some very interesting statistics such as who the most important supporting characters were and how the ratings of the show have trended over time relative to other TV shows that have also declined in ratings. The Simpsons has declined in ratings precipitously over time. This is really a show about applied data science and you know things you can do in your spare time as a computer scientist, as a data scientist, as a software engineer. Todd works at Genius in New York, and I took the opportunity to ask him a bunch of questions about pop culture, given that Genius is a place where pop culture and data collide. If you haven't seen the site, it started out as a wiki for rap music called Rap Genius. It quickly grew to discuss more aspects of pop culture. And I like Todd a lot because he also has a variety of other side projects. He does data science involving betting markets. He does analysis of taxis versus Lyft and Uber. He has done a systematic study of the wedding section of the New York Times, and I just love the ethos of just hacking on stuff in your spare time. It is something I really admire, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Todd Schneider. Todd Schneider is a software engineer and genius. Todd, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. You did a detailed analysis of 27 seasons of data on the TV show The Simpsons. Why would you do this? Why would I do? Well, why not? Um, you know, uh, as a lifelong fan of the show, sort of. I mean, I say I'm a lifelong fan of the show, and it's certainly my favorite show of all time, but I haven't actually probably watched an episode in maybe 10 or 12 years, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but, you know, big fan of The Simpsons, and I guess what really... Uh, motivated me to do it was a while back in, so I think it was 2014, I don't exactly know when, uh, simpsonsworld.com came out, uh, which is a site where you can view any episode of The Simpsons ever streaming. Uh, it's got a whole bunch of other goodies, uh, including like the scripts and episode guides and stuff like that. And so when it came out in 2014, I remember you know reading the news and thinking, oh, this is cool. Uh, and it said something like, you know, and all the scripts are going to be available, and they weren't they weren't available yet. And I said, ah, oh, that's going to be you know a cool thing to look at. Let me let me make a, a note of that. Uh, and so I did, and that was you know when, when it, so I guess that was close to two years ago at this point. Uh, and it kind of like I, I set up a, a Google News alert I think to see when the scripts were released, and like they kind of never were, they never were, they never were. Uh, and finally, they were fairly fairly recently, a few months ago. Uh, and so I, I wrote some code to parse them and do a little analysis but uh no no deeper reason other than that <laughs> right and we will obviously get into this project in more detail but i can relate to the simpsons having a special place in your heart um, i'm not exactly sure how old you are but i'm 28 and you know i remember growing up there was uh i don't know when you watched the simpsons but for me there was like a Six, like 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., I think, where Simpsons was on followed by Seinfeld, and I would watch an hour of TV before dinner every night, and I basically watched the entire... Uh, well, you, I mean, you learn that, like, the the whatever network is airing, I think it was Fox, Fox, um, you know, they would, like, bubble the to the best episodes and just play those over and over and over again. So there are certain episodes that I never, ever saw, but I would see the, the classic ones over and over again. Yeah, that, that, that mirrors my experience pretty well. So I'm a couple years older than you are. So one, one of my earliest memories with the show is actually, I don't remember if it was on at 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. on Sunday nights. And one of the very, it might have been season one or season two. And it was right on the cusp of my bedtime. And I remember my, my parents sort of like, there was, you know, I had an older brother and there was some debate as to whether or not I should be allowed to, to stay up to watch The Simpsons because I wanted to so badly, uh, even though it was right just sort of after I was supposed to go to bed. Uh, but yeah, definitely the the, the hour long block uh, around dinner time is a, a family staple. Uh, for us, it was always you know one episode of The Simpsons and then Jeopardy. That was our that was our hour instead of Seinfeld. 
So it's actually a common refrain in my life. People always assume that I'll, I'll be a big Seinfeld fan. And I, I like Seinfeld, don't get me wrong. I just haven't seen that many episodes of it because it was just not, was, it wasn't part of our family routine the way The Simpsons and Jeopardy were. What do you think was unique about The Simpsons? I mean, now there are these other cartoon, serious cartoon shows that seem somewhat different. Uh, not not derivative but they took cues from the simpsons like family guy i feel like family guy took a whole lot of cues from the simpsons um south park probably took some cues from the simpsons i don't know when i when i was looking uh when i was looking into the preparing for the show and and i i'm i like you have not watched simpsons in a long time even though it used to be a a big show for me uh i was looking back at some of the content i was like wow some of this stuff was actually pretty racy or pretty like somewhat controversial for the time. Um, I don't, what do you think were the things that made Simpsons so special? Yeah, to me, it's actually. So I would I would actually even tie it to to Jeopardy to my other you know the other half hour of my my hour long block when I was in in middle school and high school, uh, which is to say, it just it hits so much of you know culture at every level, both like you know scholarly and also pop culture. It's like it's shocking how many you know trivia questions I could answer correctly based only on, you know, knowing The Simpsons very well, and especially as I've gotten older and sort of, like, you know, read more famous books and seen more famous movies and just, like, the number of them that are somehow or other referenced in The Simpsons uh, is, is pretty staggering. And so, you know, as a, as a kid watching it, you don't always necessarily appreciate all of the kind of, like, the just such attention to detail, I guess I'd call it, or just the very intelligent writing. Uh, and it's just incredible how, how much they sort of wove into the show uh, and I think that that's probably what what sticks with me the most is just how much how much of what you could call like the cultural canon I learned from The Simpsons making fun of it or you know referencing it somehow. Right now, as we get into the discussion of the data science that you performed on these scripts, um, so did you know what questions? So you had this big corpus of data, these scripts of the show. Did you know what questions that you wanted to ask up front? What, or did you just like clean the data and formalize the data in a way that you knew you would be able to easy, easily interact, it, interact with it and then decide what questions you want to ask? Or did you have the questions already prepared? Yeah, I would say, you know, more toward the former of what you just said. So, you know, a thing that I always sort of like to, you know, one of my talking points normally when talking about kind of data analysis projects is that often it's like the questions you ask uh, tend to be more important than the sort of methods you choose to answer them, uh, or at least that can be the case in a lot of circumstances. So definitely, uh, stuff about you know character breakdowns was something that I, I knew I wanted to look at, and that just comes from you know being a lifelong fan of the show and being curious. Uh, and so certainly, I set out to make sure I could structure things around answering questions like that. Uh, but you know, also along the way, just kind of like other stuff pops up, uh, and again because. You know, I had this sort of simmering in my head for such a long time. Uh, since 2014, I had kind of jotted down a few random ideas here and there, uh, you know, looking at... I actually thought originally I might do a big thing on the popularity of each episode on Simpsons World. So, like, what episodes do people want to stream? Uh, because, you know, that's kind of an interesting window into you have a modern audience with this giant back catalog and, like, what, what do they gravitate to? Um, you know, TV ratings is something that came up kind of just randomly when I was looking at Wikipedia. And I was like, oh, wow, Wikipedia has all this old historical ratings data. Uh, and so that that kind of appeared from there. Um, there's some other stuff that I also didn't end up, like I, I looked at IMDb a bit, you know, IMDb voting and stuff like that. I just kind of ended up discarding that and not using it at all. Uh, but, you know, at, at a high level, I would say I kind of knew what I wanted to look at and that that sort of helped guide how to structure the data. But of course, you know, you want to stay flexible. And and uh, if you think of something new along the way, make sure you can accommodate it. Mm. So why don't you give the listeners a bit of an idea of how you cleaned and prepared the data and what format you put it in uh, so that you could easily ask the series of questions that you wanted to ask? Sure. So I, I actually kind of used a Ruby on Rails app, which is maybe not the most intuitive thing, uh, because normally you think of Rails as a you know framework for serving web applications, and this is not a web application; it's just a, a database. Uh, but you know, sort of working backwards, I, I wanted to end up with a uh, a SQL database. You know, I, I tend to use PostgreSQL just because it's what I know. 
So working backwards, I want to have a Postgres database uh, that you know has information about every episode, character, stuff like that. Uh, and so how am I going to get there? And you know, I find that using Ruby on Rails uh, and the sort of active record system is just a good way of structuring things. So you know, what I did was I thought about okay, what what kind of you know what are, what are my models here? Like what are my what are my tables? And the most obvious one is episodes. Uh, so definitely one record for every episode in the history of the show, uh, and that is kind of really the first thing. And then you know everything else kind of stems off of that. So what what attributes does an episode have? Uh, well, it has the obvious stuff like it has a name, it has a uh, a season, it has a production code, it has uh, you know the date it aired, stuff like that. Uh, but then you also have all these kind of like supporting pieces of data. So what do I mean by that? Well, one thing an episode has is a TV rating. Uh, it has a you know number of votes on IMDb, an average vote score on IMDb, uh, and then you know most crucially, it has what I stored is actually just a you know full HTML blob from Simpsons World, uh, and that HTML blob includes the script and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, and from a technical perspective, what I did was I just kind of like you know grabbed that full HTML one time for each episode. Uh, store it in a giant text column uh, so that you only have to make one actual web request per episode. Uh, and then, you know, after that, once you have the HTML, you can sort of write a bunch of worker jobs that go through, parse it, and turn it into something more useful. And so what is the more useful thing? Uh, now we get into sort of the other the other models that are in my, my little Rails app, uh, which are characters, uh, script lines and locations, and you know, I guess well, character is pretty straightforward. It's you know, a character on the show, uh, and locations very similar to a character. Script lines a little bit, you know, why why choose why you know break it into the line level? Why not break it into the word level? Why not break it into the you know? I don't, I don't know why. Um, what other alternatives there would be? But you know, basically, I picked script lines because if you look at a script, uh, it's kind of the natural unit, you know, it's like, it says Homer says X, and then Marge says Y, and then Bart says Z. And so each of those, you know, each, each, uh, I mean, I don't remember the actual HTML structure, but called each div in the script is basically one script line. Uh, and so that, you know, processing all those produces the final data set, which is, you know, episodes, each episode has a bunch of script lines, each script line belongs to one character and one location. Now, I find it interesting that you you just use Rails, and I like that because I like it that it's. Uh, I think people sometimes get caught up in something like I don't know data science, like I'm just a Rails developer, um, and they think they need to learn R or Python or something. But you actually many times don't need to. Um, particularly, I mean, uh, you need to get to a pretty big. Uh, data set where like it, it it really matters what language you're using and um, and many times the 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 libraries that you're using in any language are going to do the job for like a basic data science task. Um, so what kind of did did you have you know I think there were some some examples where like you know you had. You did. You did a stat where you found the gender ratio. Like you found you you found the how women were represented in the show versus uh, male characters. And my understanding is that from the data, the script data, like because you're just you're just uh, parsing this these data this data from the scripts of the episodes, they do not label which character is male and which character is female. So did you have to manually go through and label all the characters as male or female? Uh, short answer, yes. <laughs> so I, I didn't do it for every single character. I, you know, I think in the in the total set of scripts, uh, there are about six thousand characters, and now a lot of them are dupes. So like, you know, you might see like Homer sometimes, and sometimes you'll see like Homer's brain or young Homer or something like that. And so, or in other cases like Troy versus Troy McClure, even though they're the same thing. Uh, so I actually did some deduping at that level, which is in the code base. Uh, and then once I had sort of deduped to my own sort of satisfaction, which again is to say not 100% deduped by any means, there's a bunch of like characters who have one line that I didn't bother deduping. Um, I, I made a big list of the you know the the ones who spoke the most words, and I just you know put it in a spreadsheet, went through line by line, flagging you know male or female, 
so on down the list. And I did it, I think, for the top, I don't know, 320 or something like that, who collectively account for 86 or 87% of the dialogue. So, you know, I, I did sort of drop off for the gender analysis, at least the bottom 13% of dialogue, whatever that number is. But of course, you know, I also, you know, it's all, everything's on GitHub. So if somebody wants to go through and, you know, categorize the, the remaining 5,000 characters, whatever it is, uh, they're more than welcome to. Uh, it's not even, you know, that hard. It's just, you know, most of them you can, or at least, I guess I should say that the top 100 are not hard because they're all characters you recognize. Then you start getting into names that you don't really know, and then you have to start looking things up here and there. Uh, I learned that Kang and Kodos, one of them is a, a man, the other one's a woman. I forget which. I think Kang is the man, Kodos is a woman. Are those the aliens? Yeah, the aliens, yeah. Interesting. So, uh, you know, uh, are you a data scientist at Genius? Uh, Not officially, but I I mean, maybe unofficially. Okay. So, from your point of view at Genius, Genius, do you think that, is there a lot of... um, manual data cleaning that you have to do? do like is is this type of thing where you had to label the characters as male versus female is this a typical type of thing you would have to do as a data scientist uh i don't know about that i mean that you know the the labeling men versus women you know i think it's the kind of thing you could probably come up with some kind of sophisticated thing to guess at it automatically but like the amount of time that's going to take versus the amount of time of just writing it all down and, and running through a spreadsheet and hitting M or F is faster. Uh, I think the thing that is quite common is the deduping. Uh, so, you know, this comes up a ton at Genius where you have you know, people who are transcribing information about songs and artists have slightly different names. And there's a whole bunch of uh, complicated logic that we have that there have been some pretty hilarious bugs over the years that I can't exactly remember off the top of my head. But, you know, stuff like dollar signs versus S's, you know, the versus the T-H-E versus T-H-A, uh, commas in names sometimes causes problems. You know, like, uh, there's all sorts of, you know, if, if artists really only understood uh, how databases work, maybe they would change their names, but they don't. And so we have to, we have to work around that. Uh, and so that is something, and I guess I don't know if I'd call that a data science problem so much as like a, you know, web development problem, but that's a very common problem, I think, uh, that comes up in the world. Now, you found that, in the gender ratio examination that you did, there was only 25% of the dialogue coming from female characters in the show. And I found I find it interesting that m- my recollection of The Simpsons is that the female characters in the show are on the whole more intelligent. Like Lisa and Marge seem smarter than Bart and Homer. So I find it interesting that they are they only talk a third uh, of the amount that men are talking. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm not sure if I, you know, this, this is sort of the, the more controversial part of the post. There are some people who, uh, you know, think it's not a problem. There are some people who think it is a problem. Uh, I'm not sure I have a real opinion. I just, it was something that, that struck me and, you know, truth be told, I had never really thought about, although, you know, in retrospect with hindsight, it's like, yeah, of course, thinking about it now, it's like all of the main characters are men. Uh, and yes, I think it's also true that the, you know, especially if you look at the Simpson family, right? Homer is kind of the, the clown who sort of somehow or other always figures out how to do the right thing, but does the wrong thing on the way there. Uh, you know, Bart is kind of the, the mischievous one. Uh, and, you know, Lisa is the, the smart one who is kind of stuck in this, uh, this world that she's kind of like too smart for and a bit of an outcast, uh, and you know, Marge just kind of puts up with it all. So definitely, the the female characters are are sort of the more responsible ones. Uh, but then when you get to the supporting cast, I'm not sure that entirely holds. I mean, <laughs> I can't remember the you know the top supporting women. You know, Mrs. Krabappel. She's kind of a a teacher who is kind of like checked out on her student. You know, it's like I don't think she's a model teacher by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Patty and Selma, Marge's sisters, they're kind of curmudgeonly. Uh, so I mean, obviously, you know, the show on the whole, most of the characters. Uh, have their kind of glaring flaws, which is what makes them interesting. Um, so certainly everyone, both men and women, have, have stuff wrong with them. Uh, but yeah, you're definitely right that in, within the nuclear family, uh, the, the women are certainly the more sensible, rational ones. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because we, we are in this, 
You do see this. Uh, I do feel like we're in something of a feminist renaissance, or at least if if you spend a lot of time in the Twitterverse, it certainly feels that way. Um, there's, I I at least get the sense that there is a raised amount of dialogue uh, dialogue around these types of things that some people might say, oh, it's just you know it doesn't matter um, it, that women are underrepresented in The Simpsons, but <clears throat> you know the 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 type of women that are very vocal uh, as feminists will say that, that this is exactly the type of thing that we, uh, that are undermining, is undermining the the progress uh, of women. D- did you look at whether the dialogue from women is increasing over time? Uh, I did not. And, uh, you know, one thing I also didn't do, but I, I noted in the post, I think it'll be a good follow-up is to sort of split the episodes by who wrote them and see how the how the breakdown works for the episodes that are written by men versus the ones that are written by women. Uh, and so, you know, the strong majority of the Simpsons writers are men, at least the sort of writers listed as episode writers. Uh, I just sort of took a quick look at that, but I didn't really do it on the episode level. Uh, and, you know, I sort of poked around with this a little bit on the internet just to see kind of what research is out there. And there's, I came across some paper that, you know, suggested that shows that are written by women tend to have a more, more equal balance. Uh, and so definitely that would be something that would be interesting to follow up with. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, certainly like there's a lot of, you know, internet comments out there that say, oh, you know, do this for sex in the city and then it's gonna be all women. And like, you know, sure, that's probably true. Uh, but I think, you know, on the whole, uh, in my poking around with this, of the sort of various meta analyses, it's like, on the whole, there's definitely a very, very strong bias, uh, across TV and movies toward male dialogue. Um, and so, you know, even if, you know, just on The Simpsons is okay. Just, you know, just as like nobody's complaining that Sex in the City is primarily female dialogue. Uh, but when you get a whole ecosystem of the entire world of TV or movies that's so far out of whack, that starts to get a little weird, I would say. Indeed. And from your point of view at Genius, I imagine you see a lot of the where the pop culture miasma is headed where do you think we are in terms of gender inequality in pop culture today? Do you think we're moving forward? Are we regressing? If if podcasts have a a fifth amendment right or not. Um, You know, I, it feels like something that's sort of even beyond the scope of what I could offer a comment on. Uh, I think, you know, pop music is an interesting area where definitely there is pretty, or I shouldn't say definitely, but I, I sort of detect uh, better balance than in a lot of areas within the pop music sphere. I mean, if you ask people to name the top pop musicians in the world, they're going to name a lot of women. Uh, and that doesn't mean things are necessarily equal, but it's at least, it's at least progress in the sense that like, again, just stop a person on the street and tell them to tell them to name the top pop artists. And like, you know, Beyonce is going to come up, Rihanna's going to come up, stuff like that. Uh, but you know, I, I don't pretend to be able to answer that, that very difficult question on my own. So you found that the TV ratings of The Simpsons are declining by episode. This is this is from a span of 25 years, from 1992 to 2015. Do you I think, think 89 actually? 89. Okay, wow. So 26 years. So do you think this is due to the quality of the show degrading, or is it ch- like just changing trends? in media consumption, like we, we've got so yeah, much I mean, more media available. Or- short answer is that it's both. Uh, I think, you know, undeniably, and I included this in the post, one of the interesting things, had nothing to do with The Simpsons, but I, I just, I took from Wikipedia the Nielsen ratings for the top 30 shows each year from 1989 through today. Uh, and so if you just look at that data, it's, or excuse me, I actually looked at the top 30 shows from 1950 through today, uh, and I made a graph of that. And if you look at that, it's just sort of startling how much higher the rating on an individual show was, you know, 60 years ago. And of course, there's a lot of good reasons for that. It's like back in the day, there were three channels and now there's, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of channels and streaming options too. Um, And so definitely part of it is just that, you know, in the 50s, I think Gunsmoke was the highest rated show and it was like the only game in town. And so 60% of TV owning people watched it. Uh, And that's just very hard to compete with in the modern era. Uh, and so if you look at that curve from 1989 through 2015, uh, a top, sort of the average top 30 show uh, has about half the rating today as it did then. 
And by the way, that's not to say, I mean, a, a subtle thing going on, it doesn't mean that there are a few people watching TV. It just means that there are a smaller percentage of the total TV audience watches the top show, uh, which is a different thing. Uh, although it may also be that TV is losing viewers or it could be gaining viewers. I don't actually even know. But anyway, so the top 30 shows have gone down by sort of about 50% in their ratings, whereas The Simpsons has gone down by more like 80 or 85%. Uh, so its decline has sort of outpaced the decline of the top shows. Um, and so, you know, why is that? I mean, you could argue that that's because people have gotten bored. You could argue because the quality has gone down. I'm sure you could come up with a whole bunch of other arguments. Uh, it's probably all of some of them. Uh, you know, personally, I stopped watching after about season 12. Uh, you know, part of that was just kind of my getting older and moving on to the real world and not having time. Also, part of it was just my being less entertained by the show uh, so to use my own single observation point, uh, I would say it's mostly declining quality, but but who knows? That's my hunch as well. I think it's funny that Simpsons, probably a show made for adults, was watched more by children, or we watched it as children and stopped watching it when we were adults. Um yeah, I think that's true for our generation. But then there's also, you know, like, uh, I'm sure there's an older generation, my parents who would have watched the show when we were kids, probably they watched it because we were watching it. Uh, but they grew to like it. And, you know, like, I don't think that generation's watching the new episodes either. So yeah, so do I mean, when you talk about the qualitative drop, what do you think that they did they drop the ball somehow? Was there just too much turnover in writers? Do you have any any theories, any causal theories? No, I mean, that's, you know, that's a hard one. And I, I, I couldn't possibly tell you. I mean, I think probably the, the most obvious explanation is just that it's extremely hard to, to write really good content year in, year out. And it's like, you know, people maybe lose a little bit of inspiration. I don't know. But, you know, it's, it's like it's easy to sit here and say, oh, the show has gone to crap, uh, you know, but maybe just take a step back. It's incredible that something was ever produced that was so good. Uh, so try to, uh, you know, look at the good as opposed to, uh, what, what it has become. But although South Park seems to have survived, South Park seems to have, I mean, obviously hasn't been going on as long as the Simpsons. How many seasons of South Park has, has there been like 15 or something? Probably more. I mean, I'm just kind of going to guess now. I'm going to guess it started in like 97, 98. Uh, and so that would put it at 17, 18, something like that. Yeah, South Park. I mean, like, I, I don't know South Park as well uh, as The Simpsons. I actually didn't really watch it for a long time when it came out. Uh, and then I started watching it a few years ago, or I guess I say a few years ago. It's probably 10 years ago at this point that I was watching South Park. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I like South Park too. And uh you know, there's been a ton of stories written about those guys, and they're kind of like they have very a weird routine where like they don't even write the episode until the week of or something like that. Uh, and so that's right. There was a recent article about them that I read. Um, or, yeah, or, it's or like I, I, I'm not an expert on them, but I, I think that their general process is to not write an episode until you know start the week before it's going to air, and that kind of lets them be like as up to date as possible. And you know, they'll be referencing things that like happened yesterday or two days ago. Uh, and all sorts of stuff like that, and obviously, I'm sure that puts a ton of stress on their their team. But uh, you know, that's what they they go for. And I think it again, it's like I'm sure it's incredibly difficult, uh, and just to be producing, you know, any output, let alone high quality output at such a high volume, uh, is is just a really tough undertaking. Do you know anyone who watches The Simpsons these days? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I, I I'm not sure I do. Hmm. Um, so can you do this for other shows? Are there other websites like this? Like, could you do this for Wheel of Fortune, I guess? Probably. I mean, you know, I, I don't what would know. You, what, would you, <laughs> what would the data science of Wheel of Fortune be? Uh, well, you could look at clues, you know, what, what words have come from the clues a bunch. So actually, well, you say Wheel of Fortune, uh, Jeopardy is one. So oh, Jeopardy. That's that's go, the one that you liked. Okay. Going going way back, or not way back, but, you know, something you mentioned earlier about sort of using Rails as a kind of data science sort of project backbone, or you want to call it. I actually gave a talk about this at RailsConf in 2014, uh, 
kind of the pitch being that like, you know, hey, if you want to do data science, whatever that means, uh, you don't have to sort of pick up one of these kind of tools known for its data science-ness. You can just use Rails. Uh, and my, my example I gave uh, was a, a, a site I built a while ago called Wedding Crunchers, which was sort of an analysis of the New York Times wedding section. Uh, and that's also a Rails app. And it does a bunch of stuff like, you know, parsing HTML, spitting out words, you know, analyzing which words come up most frequently over time in New York Times wedding announcements. And so my talk was kind of about how to do this using Rails and why Rails is well suited for it. Uh, and actually, one of my colleagues, a genius, ended up adapting that code to do the same thing for Jeopardy clues over time. Uh, and so that was kind of funny. Uh, he wrote it, I forget where exactly, I think it was maybe in time.com or something like that. But, you know, there's some, it's like Justin Bieber comes up now as often as Abraham Lincoln or something like that. Uh, and so you could see that trend over time in Jeopardy clues where obviously, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there were way more Lincoln questions than there were Bieber questions. But today, uh, there are just as many Bieber questions as, as Lincoln questions. So, so that's actually an analysis of Jeopardy that's been done by someone I know. Um, you know, as for, you know, what I personally do other shows, I think that also, you know, the short answer is probably not. Uh, and the kind of the the real interesting there is like, could I do other shows? You know, do I even have the knowledge? Do I have the like sort of personal interest to write something to do an interesting enough analysis and write about it for any other show? And I'm not sure I do. And I think it would be, you know, if somebody paid me money to say, hey, write something interesting about, you know, some series I've never seen. It's like, I'm not sure I could produce something good because you know, The Simpsons is just something that's so ingrained in me over the years. Uh, and without that kind of just like osmosis or whatever you want to call it, like, I don't know if I would know exactly where to begin for another show. Yeah, I thought it was a good, you, another another question you asked was um, which Simpsons character spoke the most words for the duration of the series? And it's a pretty simple question to ask, but it's actually a particularly good question to ask for the Simpsons because as you point out there is this debate about is the show is the main character of the show Bart or is it the main character Homer and you had some interesting statistical um, answers to that but because you are familiar with the show you knew the question to ask um, another interesting thing I thought from that statistic, was that Mr. Burns was the fifth most frequent speaker on the show. Is is Mr. Burns the antagonist of The Simpsons? Well, uh, you know, I think he is the closest thing to a villain. I mean, certainly he, at times, is, is fairly villainous. But I think most of the characters in the show, you know, ultimately do good. And, you know, there are episodes, I mean, it's obviously crazy to call an episode the best episode of all time. But, you know, I think more people consider uh, Last Exit to Springfield, the dental plan episode, the best episode of all time than any other episode. Uh, and that, you know, very heavily revolves around Mr. Burns and his sort of, you know, his ruling over the workers of his nuclear power plant and her taking their benefits away. And, you know, of course, Homer becomes the unwitting union leader and sort of eventually wins them back. Uh, and it's kind of a very, uh, I don't want to say classic, but it's sort of you know, a common trope in, in literature over the years of, you know, the kind of the, the factory owner versus the workers. Uh, that's a very, that's a very common um, dispute. And so, yeah, I guess he's the closest thing to, to a villain. I mean, one thing that I read somebody in responding to my, my uh, article pointed out that uh, this guy, John Swartzwetter, I don't even pronounce his name, but he's, he's the most prolific writer of the Simpsons. He's written, you know, more episodes than anyone Apparently he he really loved Mr. Burns and he he wrote just a ton of Mr. Burns episodes uh, and so it's not surprising to me that Mr. Burns is the biggest character outside of the family uh, and yeah I guess to answer your original question is he the villain like he's the closest thing to the villain but he also at times does good things too yeah and I think there are also episodes where he gets somewhat victimized and you the the list the um the watcher of the show is convinced to feel sympathy for Mr. Burns. It's almost like a, that's like the Lolita trick where you make the, the antagonist seem like the, uh, source of sympathy. Um, 
I think I remember really feeling my emotions being tugged on because it's so it's so easy to get your emotions manipulated when you're like a seven or eight year old who has not seen these tropes before. Sure, um, and you know, Mr. Watching Burns, instance. I think is is often he's often portrayed as very frail. You know, he's old. He's aware of his mortality. Uh, you know, right, he has he has so many illnesses that uh, if if anything were to change in his body, that it would, right, would all exactly. go collapsing down. Uh, but yeah, I'm thinking now of the the episode where he uh, he wants back Bobo, his his stuffed doll, which is of course a uh, uh, a take on Citizen Kane and the sled. Yep. Um, and you know that episode all about him sort of you know fulfilling his his childhood sort of innocence stuff like that, and it's obviously you know paints him in a much a much nicer light. Yeah. So, you know, you have a number of other data science projects that are pretty interesting um, that I read about on your site. Um, and, you know, like, I I, th- I think it's really cool that you just have a bunch of side projects. I have done side projects throughout my life. And a lot of times I will just, like, think of a topic that I'm somewhat passionate about or um something that I'm interested in and find some angle to be able to hack on this domain area. Um, you conducted a study of yellow taxi versus Uber versus Lyft ride data uh, over the last couple of years. What what conclusions did you take away from that work? Why did you start doing that experiment? Well, that's a good question. So, you know, that I think... Similar to The Simpsons, it's just something that's interesting to me. And, you know, I live in New York. I've lived in New York. I'm not from New York originally, but I've lived in New York now for 10 years. And certainly the kind of taxi universe, whatever you want to call it, is such a core part of living in New York and really distinguishes New York from most other cities in this country. Uh, And, you know, it was really something as simple as like the data became available. uh, And that was, I don't know, I think that was a year, year and a half ago. The, uh, the taxi commission just released this giant data dump uh, of you know a billion tri- over a billion trips spanning six or seven years uh, and you know combination of thinking this is a fascinating data set uh, I know how to handle data sets of this size you know that that data set is not it's pushing up on the limit of what you can do on like a single computer uh, without sort of having to to jump into more sophisticated uh, you know, techniques farming out work across multiple computers. So you can still fit it on one computer, but just barely. Um, and yeah, I mean, Uber's, you know, ascendance in the past few years has obviously been a, a huge change uh, for the city. You know, I live in Brooklyn and Brooklyn is not known for its, uh, you know, yellow taxi access. And so now I find myself taking way more Ubers than taxis. Uh, and so, of course, a very naive question to ask is, you know, is my experience normal? Is it, you know, unique? Uh, and you can look in the data and find out, no, it, it, it's, or yes, it is quite normal. And, you know, in, in, in Brooklyn now, there are way more Uber rides than there are taxi rides. Uh, and that's pretty sensible just because taxis don't serve Brooklyn that well. Uh, but in Manhattan, taxis are still quite a bit bigger. They're also losing market share. Uh, and so that's an interesting thing. Uh, and then, you know, the other, I would say just kind of funny element about the taxi data set is just the number of kind of stories you can tell about it. So, you know, looking at, you know, where do people hang out at night? Like where, where are the most popular late night clubs? You know, you can look at where the cabs are picking up and dropping off at 2am on a Saturday. Uh, and, you know, sure enough in, in my neighborhood, it's uh, definitely right near the clubs. Uh, I live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and there's a, a couple of nightclubs uh, that are, I don't know, 10 blocks from me. And like, that's where the action is at night. And it's kind of, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything, well, certainly there's nothing surprising there, but it's just, it's fascinating to, you know, see such a human phenomenon in this kind of cold, big data set full of numbers. Uh, and I think that is just a a powerful thing you can get out of a data set like that. Why is this data public? Why is this data from Yellow Taxi and Uber and Lyft all public? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I think... You know, as short answer, I don't know. Uh, it was originally there's a a you know law governing the freedom of information. Uh, I think it's called the Freedom of Information Law, and people can request certain data sets. Uh, and I don't know exactly what criteria have to be met for the the city government or the state government to release the data. Uh, but somebody did this with the taxi data a while ago, uh, and so 
this that was released. Uh, and it was kind of released in a kind of ragtag way. And people, I think, kept requesting more and more data. And eventually, they just kind of standardized it. And they said, uh, you know, here, we'll just report it in a standardized way so that people can stop asking for it. Uh, and, you know, one thing is that uh, it, as I, and I wrote about this, is there's some sort of privacy concerns with that, I would argue, uh, that you're giving out taxi data uh, where every trip includes, you know, a timestamp, a very precise latitude and longitude coordinate of where it picked up, and a latitude and longitude of where it dropped off. Uh, and so, you know, I, I gave an example of finding, you know, somebody's giant house out somewhere in the Hamptons. And it's like, well, if you want to know where this person got in the taxi from that they took out to this house, like, you can know. It's, it's right here. It's this corner in Brooklyn. Uh, and that's kind of a, you know, probably bad thing. Uh, now, Uber, or not just Uber, but all of the, the for hire vehicle data set, which is different from the taxi data set, they don't give precise coordinates. They only give uh, sort of like general neighborhood so they'll say, like, this was on the Upper East Side or this was in Tribeca, something like that. Uh, and that's probably better, truthfully. It's obviously less fun from a sort of pure data perspective. Uh, you know, probably the, the most, certainly the most uh, talked about thing in that post was the map I made of just, you know, plot pickups as individual tiny little dots. Uh, and you make this kind of very vivid map of the city. Uh, sort of weighted by where the cabs are. So Manhattan shines very bright, the airports shine very bright, and then kind of the areas in between are are darker, but you can still see where the roads are and where people pick up and drop off. Uh, and so you can't make a map like that without the coordinates. Uh, but, you know, probably all in, they shouldn't include the coordinates. It is funny how often these huge data sets get de-anonymized. Like, whether you're talking about... Netflix data, like the Netflix prize, turned out to be somewhat scandalous because it got de-anonymized. Um, I know there's been a, a number of cases uh, about this, and they, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I the question I would like to know is the who, what are the demographics uh, that are still hailing cabs, particularly in San Francisco, where where ride sharing has just gotten gigantic, um, there's still so many cabs, and I see this. You know, I, I, I don't know. It just always surprises me when I see somebody hailing a cab. I saw, like, I saw a young, well-dressed uh, guy who looked like a banker or something hailing a cab the other day. I was like, what? What is the context that is making this person hail a cab? Like, did they get kicked off of Uber or? I'll defend them in Manhattan. I mean, I think in Manhattan there's a lot going for cabs. There's so many of them. You can often get one faster than you can get an Uber. And, uh, you know, I think le increasingly less the case, but certainly a year ago I had the distinct sense, and this is, this is based on nothing but my personal observation, that a lot of Uber drivers didn't necessarily know where they were going. And so, like, there's nothing more infuriating than getting into a car in midtown Manhattan, which is, you know, a very rectangular grid and saying where you're going. And then the person has to like punch into a GPS to be like, how do I get that? It's like, just go north. Uh, and so, you know, I definitely am sympathetic to taxis in Manhattan, uh, especially if it's, you know, sometime a day when you can easily get one. The weather's nice. Uh, you know, they're just going to be faster than Uber. It's going to be faster to get one than it is to wait for an Uber. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, look, I speak with my own feed or whatever by by using uber way more than i use taxis at this point is there a streak of anti-tech people on the east coast who are uh like particularly sensitive around sharing economy topics like uh i have a really really good friend who lives in new york um god i'm such good friends with him and it's so frustrating because i every time we talk about uber or sharing economy anything is just an argument and it i i don't know if it's an east coast thing or if it's like i think this does exist in some pockets of the west coast um where i don't know people throwing rocks at the google bus or whatever but do you get into these kinds of arguments with with your uh with people not really i mean i i don't i i think there's i think there's definitely you know the sort of the tech startup industry on the whole has some image issues. No question about that. <laughs> uh, it's not confined to you know the sharing apps. I don't. I mean, I think you know most people in New York view Uber as a you know huge improvement, especially people who live in the outer boroughs. Uh, and so people you know really like Uber. And there's also, of course, there's 
you know, Uber and Lyft and all them are always kind of dealing with this question of independent contractors as employees and the drivers' rights and stuff like that. And that's that's you know, I'd say still still an issue. Uh, but you know, I don't see anyone sort of complaining about the sharing economy. Uh, you know, I have heard like Uber Pool, I guess, is something that is you know people maybe make a little bit of fun of. Uh, so I, I haven't used a lot of Uber Pool, uh, but the sense I've gotten is that people who take it, if you're going like from a crowded place to another crowded place, uh, it can take forever because like there's going to be a million stops along the way. Uh, so I've, I've heard that complaint levered at, uh, leveled at Uber Pool just for being not a great service, uh, but I don't think people sort of make fun of it. Hmm. So you have also done some studies of betting markets, I think, like... Um, how how accurate do these betting markets tend to be? Well, it's funny. I was just looking at this today. So right now, Trump, uh, Donald Trump, has about a fifteen percent betting chance to be the the president, uh, which sounds pretty low. And then you look at the vote on the Brexit, and the morning of that vote in the UK, the betting market said there was a ten percent chance that the UK was going to vote for Brexit. Oh my! Um, and so, uh, you know, obviously that happened and. Look, the fact that it was 10% it happened, of course, doesn't mean that anything was wrong. It's just like yeah. people have a very difficult time sort of internalizing what a probability means when, you know, real life, you only get to play things out once. Uh, and so I, I did this, uh, well, yeah, I've, I've done a bunch of sort of prediction mark over the years, but I, I wrote a bigger thing a few years ago, mostly revolving around sports. It's actually a Simpsons reference. It was the Gambletron 2000, uh, one of Professor Frank's creations. And, you know, on the whole, I sort of looked at and I think at the time I had maybe 10,000 events or something like that, 10,000 sporting events. And, you know, it matches up very closely. So events where the, you know, one team is a 20% chance to win, like on the whole, they win about 20% of the time. So they're, they're pretty good. Uh, and that, you know, shouldn't be terribly surprising because if it were, if it were easy to make money as a sports gambler, uh, I think a lot more people would be doing it. And it's sort of, you know, I, I think, and I'm not, I'm not I, I do enjoy gambling, but I'm definitely not a professional gambler. Uh, and the sense I get is that it's very difficult to to make money as a professional sports gambler, um, and so yeah, I don't think it's terribly surprising that that people tend to get it just about right. Hmm. Uh, yeah the the ten 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 the the Brexit versus uh, uh, versus Trump vote is that is pretty interesting. Um, well, it's extra interesting because it's of course like a similar. Uh, you know, they're kind of related, not, not just the fact that they're at comparable odds, but like similar kind of forces are at play in sort of each, uh, you know, people who voted for Brexit in the UK, I think, you know, share a lot of similarities to people who are going to vote for Trump in the US. That, that's right. And I think it is further complicated by just this weird sense I have that the, like the media, I, I, I don't trust that the pulse of the media is representative for how true public opinion is going to translate into votes like this 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 thing where that you know the tape of Trump saying these misogynistic things was released to the media and then the media is like it, i almost felt like the media like got into a room and was like all right this we're going to decide that this tape is going to be the thing that destroys Trump and then like you've just seen the narrative explode around that and Maybe that's how the public actually feels. Maybe not. Like, maybe that's just the media's decision, like the media's collective weird herd mentality decision that is actually out of sync with the broader pop. Am I alone in that, or do you get that sense too? Well, I, I think that the, the thing I most think is that the media has a very, very strong interest in perpetuating, like, you know, the media's making a lot of money off of this, right? They're getting a lot of, they lot sure of are. ratings, a lot of page views, a lot of ad impressions. Uh, there's a lot of money to go around covering uh, Donald. I was listening to an interview with someone recently, I forget who it was, you know, some late night TV show host who was saying, you know, Trump should be on the payroll. Trump should be a paid writer. It's like uh, you know, they, he provides them so much content every night that, like, uh, you know, they should be giving him money. Um, and so, you know, definitely the media, you know, what a, a month until the election or something like that. Uh, and after the election, they're going to find something new to talk about. So uh, I think they are very, very interested in keeping this as a big story uh, to, you know, make sure they keep getting the ratings and pages and all that kind of stuff that they need. Um, and yeah, I think it's probably, probably as simple as that. 
I heard that if he doesn't get elected, he's going to start his own uh, news company, like his, like a yeah, Fox. I've heard that as well. A Fox competitor against Fox News, yeah. I, I'm kind of hope like that actually sounds really entertaining. <laughs> I, I speaking out of self interest. Um, okay, so nearing the end of our time, uh, I, you know, I don't know if you listen to the show, but it's usually not about pop culture and stuff like random stuff like this it's usually about some like database or streaming framework or something but um we're definitely all over the place on this episode um i'd like to talk a little bit about engineering at genius if that's okay sure. like i i i like genius a lot um mm-hmm. the product is really cool and i'm a fan of the i like the ethos of the company because it seems pretty unique how how would you describe Genius and what kind of work are you doing on the product right now? Gotcha. So how would I describe Genius? Uh, you know, I think Genius occupies an interesting blend between a tech company and a media company. Uh, so certainly, you know, our, our area, our biggest area of expertise is in music, uh, and music is you know one of the giant pillars of, of pop culture, no question about it. Uh, and yet, we also have this element of technology. And I think the that's mostly due to the fact that the content is mostly produced, you know, it's mostly crowdsourced, right? So we, we do have an in-house content team, uh, but their kind of primary job is to foster a community of people out there in the world who want to write stuff for us and want to play the game that we've designed and stuff like that. Uh, and then, you know, our in-house content team can, you know, sort of get them to do that work or incentivize people to do that work and then turn it into something more polished uh, you know, like now that we're producing videos, for example, uh, you know, a video is something that's harder to crowdsource, but you can get the raw materials for the video uh, via crowdsourcing. And so trying to kind of build this machine where there's a game and the game is played by, you know, anyone out there in the world. And then that game produces content, you know, raw content, which can be packaged into sort of what could be labeled more premium content. Uh, and then, of course, there's a sort of ad component on that premium content, you know, just sort of that's the way the media industry works, really. Um, yeah, so I think it, it, it occupies a unique, a unique blend of tech and media companies, I would say, is what, what distinguishes us. Uh, you know, what have I done in particular? Uh, the truth is, on the product side, I haven't done all that much recently. I've been more focused on kind of, you know, back-end data analytics distribution. Also, as we sort of spun up a, a revenue team, uh, making sure that, like, ad infrastructure and stuff like that works. Uh, and so there's a lot of data that goes into that as well, making sure targeting and all these things are available. Um, but you know, it's definitely been a, a wild ride. I can tell you that much. Hmm. What's so ad infrastructure? What is your view? Do you? Uh, I don't know if you interact much. The ad tech industry is quite big in mm-hmm. New York. Um, have you been looking into how this whole industry works? Yeah, I've been learning pretty quickly, uh, and definitely one of the first things you learn is that it's way bigger than you ever possibly realized. Oh my God, <laughs> sure is. There's all sorts of companies you've never heard of that are gigantic companies and very important, uh, and so that is a big learning curve. Um, and yeah, I, I think I mean I'm not sure what to add beyond that, but definitely, definitely, if you've never sort of experienced the ad tech industry and you think it's oh probably pretty simple, it's like you're wrong. <laughs> Yeah, uh, probably as complex or rivaling the complexity of the crazy financial instruments we have in the financial industry. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was for a long time uh, in the finance industry working in mortgage-backed securities, so I have some experience with that, too. <laughs> okay. Um, and, you know, both... Both the mortgage-backed security world and the ad tech world are full of a lot of acronyms. I can give you that much. Uh, you know, in both cases, at the beginning, I had to write down a lot of acronyms and remember what does this stand for, what does it mean, uh, and yeah. My theory is that there is going to be exposure of as much fraud, or on on par with as much fraud as there was in the mortgage-backed security industry, <laughs> in the ad tech industry, in the coming years, because I don't understand how. I, I don't know. Is that is that something you're at liberty to discuss, or you have a you have a vocal opinion about about the the level of fraud in the no, ad tech I, industry? I don't have a vocal opinion, but I, I will say that sort of one of the things I learned quickly is that there is a you know one of the many segments of the ad tech industry is devoted to sort of 
you know, combating fraud or at least sort of auditing fraud. And so there's, you know, whenever you're dealing with online ads, there's a question of, you know, who's actually seeing them? Are people seeing them? Are those people actually bots? Uh, and so there is a whole bunch of companies that try to protect and they say, hey, if you want to run an ad, you have to make sure that it's not being seen by a bot or that it's, you know, the viewability number is true uh, or that the video is actually playing or the video is playing for enough seconds and stuff like that. Uh, and so there's, you know, a ton of work that goes into just these questions of sort of making sure that they're, you know, purporting to make sure that uh, ads are what they say they are and they're being seen by the the numbers that whatever ad servers are reporting are true uh, and that it's not all bot traffic and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, I don't have an opinion about what kind of fraud may or may not be uncovered in the future. Uh, you know, certainly there knew there was a big story recently about, you know, one of the, one of the big companies who might've been overcounting uh, video ad impressions. Like I have no idea if that's true or not, but you know, stuff like that is certainly coming out. There are a lot of companies that try to fight stuff like that. I have no opinion other than to say that it's it's complicated and a big industry. What makes me nervous is that when you talk about companies that are processing financial transactions, these companies are pretty um, used to a dialogue around fraud, and they're they're very comfortable having a dialogue around fraud, and they're going to ask the right questions. They're going to mm-hmm. um, put in a lot of protective measures around fraud. But I get the sense that there are still a lot of media buyers that have no idea how fraud laden this industry is, and they're you know maybe they're working at uh, Frito Lay or something, and they're buying advertising advertising for Cheetos across the internet, and they just have no idea how many bots are viewing their ads. But maybe I'm totally wrong about that. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're probably right. I mean, I think you know in my experience with big financial institutions, uh, and I, I didn't work for a big financial institution by the way, but you know they all have giant compliance departments full of people who do nothing but, you know, worry about whether or not they're complying with the many rules. Uh, And, you know, that's not to say they do always. Obviously, plenty of things have gone wrong. Uh, But there's giant compliant teams. uh, And I don't think there are giant compliant teams in the sort of ad world or giant compliance team. At least I haven't seen them. Maybe there are. But uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that probably there are fewer people who kind of realize what could go wrong. Um. You know, then again, you could argue that uh, a bot viewing an ad is probably a less significant thing than a lot of the sort of financial abuses that happened. Yeah, I think the ad tech industry is much smaller, I guess. But I feel like Google is an ad tech company and they're a really big company. So not sure. But um, I got to be careful. I can't accuse Google of fraud yet uh <laughs> um yeah i don't know it, we, i don't know it's, this this bot stuff uh creeps me out um and i also feel like did you i don't know if you saw that a while uh several days ago where like there was like a trump one uh hashtag that was like a hashtag like after a debate that trump won and like most of the tweets about it were originating from Russia. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's you know that's just a good old fashioned uh, cleverness, I would argue. I mean, I, saw, I actually saw some Trump ads on, I think it was the Wall Street Journal homepage. It was some newspaper, not the New York Times, after one of the debates, and it was it was an ad. It was just a banner ad, and the banner ad just said Trump won the debate or something like that. And it was like I thought, hey, that's pretty clever. You know, you just put an ad there. And a lot of people are just going to kind of scan it. They're not going to click it. They're not even going to notice it's an ad. They're going to think it's a headline. Uh, you know, not a bad way to to try to get an impression. Sure, yeah. But what I think is that the those that ha- trending hashtag came from from bots, like t- perhaps like Russian botnets that were purchased. But I don't know. I don't want to get into conspiracy theory too much. Um, okay. Well, Todd, uh, <laughs> this has been a great conversation. Um, covered a lot of different things, um, and I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily and talking about random data science projects yeah my pleasure uh, thanks for having me and you know if if the the audience out there hasn't hasn't tuned out and they're looking for something more technical you know most of what we've talked about is on github in code form open source and you can see the actual sort of uh code written and what it does so you know check it out uh but yeah this has been a lot of fun thanks for having me 
Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow. 